So if you came this morning, read up on 1 Corinthians 14, ready to go, sorry to disappoint you. We will not be getting into that this morning. We are starting a vision series. We like to do this once a year, uh, usually around this time, to stop and assess who we are as a church, to remind those who've been with us all along, this is who we say we are. And so it's not just us saying that's who we are, but that we'd be reminded of, of the mission, the task before us. What's the vision of the Crossing Church? And there are some ways in which the vision needs to shift over time as we contextualize, as we examine where we've swung a pendulum or, or maybe reached too far on this way and not enough on another. And so we are always in flux. We're always, it's ebbing and flowing, and, and we're constantly seeking how the Spirit would lead us, how He's equipped us, and how He's brought us together. And over this last year, several new faces are, are among us. There's, there's new people, new gifts among us, and we should take time to consider, are we rightly presenting the vision of the crossing? And, and hopefully you hear it every week. Hopefully every sermon we preach from the text, you hear the gospel and how it shapes us and how we then should go and live on mission. Uh, but we think it's imperative to stop and, and in different ways refresh ourselves. What is, it, what is exactly that we are seeking to be and do. And so this year, uh, we're going to do that a, a little bit differently, but still incorporating all that we are, our values and, and everything. Um, by first just looking at this vision that we have laid out as the crossing, we desire all people to enjoy Christ always by following him and being changed by his gospel. So if you've been a part of a connect class or a new member class, you've, you've taken time to break down that vision a little more um, but hopefully it speaks for itself, that we would be a people who desire to see Christ worshipped by more and more people because we believe he actually changes things. And it's our desire because it's God's desire. We want to see our Father glorified. We want to see more and more people join this family. And so we live lives, hopefully, in accordance with this vision. But it's going to be a while before we get to the text this morning. I, I want to be sure to lay out a thick foundation as we talk about what this vision is. So if you don't want to call it a sermon, because I'm not going to read the Bible for a while, that's okay with me. It's important, though, that we see the vision. And, and I think that maybe you'll hear gospel truth as we walk through some of this, even though it's not word for word from Scripture. So we want to be a church that is all about goodness and about truth. So when we think goodness, we think more actions, we think truth, we think more on paper, but we want to be about both. We value orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We value theology and doxology. We, we value right doctrine and right behavior. It's so important we get the order right when we talk about these things. And we've talked about that before. We got to get the order right. But I, I think that maybe we have at times overemphasize one or the other and oscillate it between these different mindsets, a mindset that's more uh, critical and anxious and exhausted because we're doing and we're not doing good enough, and a mindset that is lazy and indifferent and ashamed because we never measure up. And so what that communicates is we're not believing the gospel. We maybe have a list of do's and don'ts, and we have a list of rules to follow, but unlike anything else, Christianity frees us from the obligation to do, frees us to have a joyful obedience. And we espouse a, a foundational conviction that's in line with this. Our behavior is a fruit of who we are. So rather than focus all of our time and energy in studying God's word to determine how exactly we should behave and then modifying that behavior according to God's word, we study the word of God, seeking out gospel truth in scripture that would free us because of something we believe, changing who we are, and our actions follow that. Our doing supersedes, is being superseded by our being. That is to say, your actions don't determine who you are. They show you who you are. And the simplest way you can think of it. If we get so caught up on behaving in a certain way, then we're functioning in religion. And, and every system of belief in the world throughout history, every religion says, do these things and you'll be blank. Whereas the gospel is good news that Jesus has done everything. 
And he's made you something new. And being made new in Christ has a result of good works. Faith has a result of good works as long as it's alive. And now new creations in Christ, we produce good fruit in our joyful obedience. And that is all about faith and motivation and heart and not about doing. So when it comes to doing, those who have faith, you have to work hard at it still. And we miss that sometimes. We think, just have faith, believe harder, and I'm just going to naturally do good things. But if I want to be a better leader, I'm going to have to work at it. So we have to still cultivate the ground. God grows the plant and produces the fruit, but the cultivation is necessary. So have faith, believe, and then work hard at it. Have faith and believe and then work hard to intentionally love your neighbors and, and witness to people in your life about who this Jesus is. It's going to take action. It's going to take words. But it has to start with right faith and motivation to believe. So though some here are more intuitive and, and you can feel what's right, and I'm grateful for the intuitive people because I think by majority, the Crossing Church is made up of a bunch of intellects who can get fat-headed and big heads slow you down. Though some here are intuitive, the tendency of our church is to leave quite a bit of all this information in our heads, and we intellectualize the gospel, and we think truth is enough. And I think that it truncates Christianity, uh, to say the least. I think that there's a danger with imbalance here because it leads to a joyless doing without any eternal significance or doing nothing at all because we don't have the faith to believe it even matters. This is the foundation being laid. We have to rightly understand by the work of the Spirit and believe by the work of the Spirit and then do good work by the work of the Spirit. Otherwise, we unintentionally create an atmosphere that's just filled with anxiety and shame and disunity and apathy rather than a gospel-fueled, grace-filled pursuit of Christ in all of life because He is everything and we really believe it. We're just talking about Christianity here. It may sound foreign because everything's been shifted to doing things differently. And even when we started this church with this clear vision to be this, we slip into these ditches. Without gospel belief, by the grace of God, our greatest hope is bolstering our self-righteousness through accomplishments by our own willpower. Or there are those among us who have solid doctrine and can recite every creed there is and can tell you all about the hypostatic union of Christ and how divinity meets human nature and can break down the Trinity for you without using one single heretical metaphor. But they never do any good work because faith is dead. That's why PhDs in theology can still go to hell. So what do we do about this? I'm glad you asked because we, we need to answer that. How do we avoid this human tendency to go through the motions, to speak Christianese, to, to play the part, to claim Christ but have no evidence of it in our lives? How do we avoid this? Well, it's what we've said all along. We have to be centered around the gospel. How do we do that? We stop worshiping our idols. We've got to identify what those idols are. We've got to see how Jesus is better. We have to work at it again and again and again. Repentance is necessary for every Christian. Belief in the gospel again and again is necessary for every Christian always. I think one of the biggest idols the American church has is the American church. We worship ourselves. We think we're awesome. Look at what we're doing. And then we create these competitions between all the churches. We can do it better than they can do it. Come be with us. And it unravels the foundations of our faith. So breaking this mindset with belief in the gospel requires us not to compartmentalize the gospel within Christianity. Like, okay, this is where the gospel belongs, and then Christianity is all this other stuff. That's just not it. The gospel applies everywhere in our faith. You can't have faith without it of any kind. So... It's not compartmentalized within Christianity. And then more than that, Christianity cannot be compartmentalized within your individual lives as if it's an appendage to the rest of you. You still lie for yourself. 
And when I say you, I mean you individually and you as a church, us corporately. We cannot compartmentalize the gospel. We can't compartmentalize our faith. It should find its way into every part of our lives. If we really believe Jesus changes everything about us and we hope that it would change everything about others, then we cannot keep it separate from anything. School and work and life and family and everything. It's all about Jesus always. And it's the proclamation of this good news, not not good advice or good rules to follow. The gospel cannot be reduced. It has to be good news and not merely good advice. It's got to be more than principles. It's a proclamation of who Christ is, that we're not who we once were because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. We've been forgiven and set free. We're no longer a slave to sin. We have power now because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We we have been equipped in every way. We've been gifted in every way. We have all that we need because of the gospel. Hear this good news. Not, Not because of what I've done or because of what I do, but because of who he is and what he's done and what he will do through us. Church, do you hear this as good news? Do you feel it as good news? Challenge to the intellects in the room. I want you to feel it this morning. I don't want you to try to figure it out. I want you to feel it. I don't know if you've noticed throughout your time with us, but we only have one message. There's not another message here. It's the gospel. We'll proclaim it in every way. We'll study the word of God. We'll see Christ in it every time because it's all about Jesus. It's the same thing because it's what we need to proclaim the gospel. It's all about the story of God. We're, we're about proclaiming this good news, knowing that it, in it, we find the hope for everything. We find life in it. So I'll ask you, like I have many times before, do you believe the gospel? Not do you claim to be a Christian, not do you, do you have good deeds in your life, not do you care about people, not do you have some words to tell me if I ask you what is the gospel and you can recite it back to me. I'm not asking you if you have the knowledge and theological concepts to break down how salvation works. I'm asking you, do you believe it's good news? Do you feel it as good news in your life? Can you find freedom in it? Do you have peace in it? Do you have joy because you believe it's true? Do you have hope for your future and the future of your kids? Do you have hope for the the crossing church? Do you have hope for Monroe and West Monroe because of the gospel? Because you know it's true. Because your father has loved you and brought you back into the family. Do you believe this is true? Because that has to shape everything that we are. The Lord has saved us despite us. And we should be grateful and amazed at it every day. Does it stir in you a desire to praise him, to throw off inhibitions, to praise him? Can you set aside the idols you worship, the fear of what people think, to worship this God Moreover, do you see that not only has he called you out of darkness, but he's called you to something that's not for you to hoard to yourself. How good that peace is, how good that joy is, how satisfied you are in Christ. It should burden you and compel you to love others so that they can come and know this Savior. Do you sense it? Do you feel it? Now, do you know it? Do you believe it? And because we are filled with the Spirit, not only do we have the ability to understand, but we have the vision to see it. I think a mistake churches make often, and I think we might be guilty of it at times, is we say, okay, here's the vision, here's the mission. It sounds really good, so let's go and do it. Instead of recognizing the mission and the vision belong to God, let's seek Him so that He can give us the ability to see it And then let's do it. As leaders of the church, we cast vision and we, according to Ephesians 4, equip the saints for the work of ministry and we share this corporate responsibility to cultivate the ground so that life can grow, so that fruit can be produced. We share this responsibility and leaders bear a responsibility over that. But the vision and the mission belong to God. 
We've been called by Christ and sent by Christ, and the mission is before us. Lord, give us the vision to see it. We cannot make it up. So it all depends on whether or not we see the gospel as good news, and then we work to understand what makes it good news, not just for us and understanding the story of God and how we've been swept up into it, but also what makes it good news for Monroe and for West Monroe. And how, too, can they join us in this mission? How can they join us in this family? That's what we've been called to. As missionaries, we, we, it's necessary as missionaries that we study the culture, that we understand not just our story and God's story, but the story of this city, the brokenness, the need for truth, the need for hope. And we take into account this overarching story of God, and that's what we're going to be doing in this, in this vision series. But we have to, in the end, know that it's not just for us to hoard for ourselves in this building where it's nice and comfortable. There's hard work to be done. It's going to get messy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to require daily repentance. But in God's creation, he started something. The mission went forth. We've failed often, but he has designated his people to carry this mission, to carry this good news. And so we know we can do it. It's been carried imperfectly, but there's a hope that it ends well. There's an eschatological hope, to give you a theological term, that when it ends, Christ is king. And we know that because he's king right now. And there's this tension of an already not yet gospel because there's work to be done, but we know how it ends. And so here is our vision series. We have some questions that we want to answer. Different guys will be teaching different weeks, and so I'm not giving direct titles, but here are the questions we want to answer on the screen. And overall, we're looking at the story of God and creation, his character, his nature, what he set forth, the mission when it initiated. We're looking at the people of God and our rebellion and wandering in in the wilderness and Jesus coming to save us. We're looking at the mission of God as the church in the New Testament and and all the way to the revelation of new creation and and the hope that we know how it's going to end. This is the grand narrative of Scripture. This is the gospel throughout all. That All of our stories fit into this story if you are a believer. And if you're not a believer, you're in there too. It just doesn't end well. And then we're going to end with the crossing church. And in our last week of September, we'll look at our part in this story specifically and how we are a moment, a blip on the timeline, but we are a necessary part. And he has placed us here with purpose. And there's a mission before us and we're seeking God to give us vision to see it. So that's where we're headed. And for the rest of today, I want to kind of make some broad brush strokes, kind of lay out a canvas for us. And I think that we can make a connection to the people of God in Scripture to ourselves today. And so that's what we're going to seek to do and using Jeremiah 29 to, to do that. So if you want to finally open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. But we're not going to read it just yet. Get there. Get there. We're just not going to be there yet. I want to, I want to kind of give you a, a lead up to this. Because I know not everyone is well versed in the Old Testament. Um, but I, I, it's all a part of God's story. It's in there for a reason. So I want to kind of lay out very, very basically what led us to Jeremiah 29. Uh, we've done something similar when we went through Daniel uh, about a year ago. So if you want to go back and listen to the Daniel series, I like it. You might like it. Uh, It's the Word of God and how we are part of this story. So many people, even if you're not in the church, you know Adam and Eve. So God created Adam and Eve, and He initiated this new work to spread His glory throughout the earth through the multiplication of this one family. And we're all connected to Adam and Eve, but it led up to a lot of rebellion. A lot of things went wrong to Noah. So He saved this one family and destroyed everyone else. Dead bodies floating in the water that's often left out of the children's bedtime story. He killed everyone because that's how much he hates sin and sinners and preserved this one family because he is a gracious, loving father. And from Noah, we get the line of everyone else. And so we have eventually Abraham, who God designates as his people, will come from Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac and Isaac, Jacob. And we have Israel. And then Jacob has his sons and the 12 tribes of Israel come from there. And except for Joseph was sold off into slavery, went into Egypt 
uh, and, and by God's favor worked his way up and made, made in second command in Egypt under the Pharaoh and famine struck the land and the people of God came to Egypt and some time went by and they forgot about Joseph and the Hebrews were growing rampantly and, and the Pharaoh got a little scared and so he said, let's enslave them and we can build some pyramids. It'll be awesome. And so they did that and some time went by to be exact 400 years of slavery. So keep in mind, this is the people of God who were born lived and died in slavery generation after generation. The people of God, not living in prosperity, not living healthy, wealthy lives, but born, living, dying, and all they would know is slavery as well as their children and their children for 400 years in Egypt. And then Moses came along again by the grace of God to deliver his people as a a sign of a deliverance that would come one day far in the future. And Moses led them out of Egypt into the wilderness where things got bad and crazy because of rebellious people for a while. And even Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. He got to see it though, so that was nice. And Joshua fought the battle and led them into it. And once they were there, they were happy, maybe too happy, began to separate into their tribes. Things got a little crazy, a lot of idol worship, some really horrible leaders. They were divided north and south. And Israel, the people of God, wandering now, figuratively from God, worshiping idols. Jeremiah is one of the many prophets who went to them to say, come back to God, come back to where you belong. And, and they were desperate for a leader. So instead of listening to prophets, they wanted kings. And so Saul was appointed and Saul did some horrible things just all around. He was a bad guy and struggled. David, who was a little bit better, at least he sought God, had his hiccups and was a pretty bad father, and so his kids were all screwed up, and Solomon turned out okay, so then he took over, really wise, had some lady problems, really misled, and then things got really bad from there. So Jeremiah came with this warning that the enemy was going to come in, take them away from their promised land, and He used language of prostitution to make it sound necessary, uh, an adultery of worshiping God with idolatry and an adoption of these false gods, the breaking of a covenant with Yahweh. Moreover, they, they had these series of bad kings and priests and prophets who were just corrupt in many ways, and it perpetuated all these issues. So as a result, now that was really, that was really brief. So I'm going to need you to go study the things in between. As a result of the idol worship, there was widespread, unchecked social injustice among God's people that the most vulnerable were falling victim to. So the poor, the widows, the orphans, the outsiders, a.k.a. immigrants and marginalized people were massively neglected. Obviously, this is against the word of God. This is against the law of God for the good of his people. But everyone was living for themselves. Everyone was worshiping themselves. Maybe there was a statue before them, but they thought they knew what was best for themselves. The adultery was within. The issue was the heart. So what does a loving and gracious father do when his children are in rebellion? He disciplines them. Sometimes that's taking away things they really enjoy as a father. I know this. Sometimes it's the necessary infliction or at least allowing of some suffering. And for the people of God, it was exactly that. Jeremiah warned that Babylon would come in and the Assyrians would come in and they would remove these, the people of God, force them into idol worship and assimilation into a new culture. The slavery was different than that of Egypt, but nevertheless, they were captives in this land. And Jeremiah warned them it was coming and then it came. The Babylonians come to, into Israel. They conquer the people of God. They separate families. They, they, they leave the ones that they don't care about, the poor and, and the marginalized, and they bring the nobles and the kings and the queens and the leaders, and they appoint new leaders who aren't nearly as efficient at it, and they bring these, this high class of people back to Babylon and, and force them to assimilate, and that's where the book of Daniel takes off. But 
Consider, if you will, being there among these people. As the people of God, let's think about being the people of God in this time. Individual lives, real people and families. Some were slaughtered. Some were left in poverty. Some were taken to never return. Generations would stay in Babylon and try to imagine how you might feel about that situation. Try to consider the emotions you might feel towards God. Consider the anxiety you might have about yourself, about your family, about your future. What would, you, what would we even do? Like, I don't even know how to respond in that sort of situation. What does moving forward even look like in that situation? How does trusting God work itself into that? Your family's gone. You don't know what the future holds. You have some conviction about right and wrong because you were raised in a good Jewish home, but now you're being forced to abandon that. Whereas before it was evil to have idols there, though they might have been there. Now you're going into a land covered in idols. You have a clear understanding of what's clean and unclean, what's right and what's wrong, and now you're being forced into a lifestyle that doesn't care about that at all. And you may have some conviction to obey God, but you don't have the freedom to make that decision anymore. So imagine feeling that and then hearing Jeremiah 29, 11, from the word of the Lord to the people of God, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Not applied to the individual as we often do today, but applied to the people of God who are going into captivity with the often skipped verse 10 that tells us it's going to be 70 years. So every, basically everyone in this room, except for maybe the babies, will probably be dead in 70 years. I hope the best for you. I don't know. So even if you hear this good news that the Lord has plans to give us future and a hope, it doesn't really apply to us. Maybe our kids and our kids' kids. And that may sound less comforting, but I think it, it causes us to think on something that's necessary. It helps us consider long-term. The, in fact, the, the next few chapters of Jeremiah go into God saying he will never abandon his people, that he has a promise to renew the covenant with a coming ruler, a Messiah, a Savior will come. There's a hope that goes far beyond even the 70 years Jeremiah is giving them a prophecy, not just for their sake, but for the sake of all of God's people that will come, that the discipline they are enduring will be for the good of God's people to come. And this new Savior, this new covenant will be something not written on stone tablets, but written on our hearts. So let's rewind this a bit. It's not about what's outside of us and about the behavior, but more about the motivation that spurs on that behavior. It's more about the work that's being done inside that brings about the good works on the outside. There is a promise to renew the covenants that God's people will benefit from for eternity. And so in the New Testament, we find a church exists that's still a part of a diaspora, still in exile due to the persecution hostility towards those who follow Christ now. But we find many of these letters, especially First Peter, is most clearly written to those who are part of this diaspora and, and those who are scattered about, those who are witnessing of this Christ and, and living a life following this Christ, though very much in exile. And we see written in, in Philippians chapter 3, this reminder Paul gives the people in Philippi that this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So though we had the, the saints of old in the Old Testament awaiting the Savior, very much still today, the New Testament church and us, a New Testament church, we're awaiting a Savior, knowing this is not our home. The fulfillment of God's promises are not yet complete. Even though Christ has come and done everything necessary, it's not yet complete. There's still a work to be done. We're, we're here, but this is not our home. Yet, as we're here, there's work to be done, and we are to not forget where we actually belong. In Hebrews, 
the author of Hebrews writes very similarly in chapter 11, verse 13 and 16, tying Old Testament to new and to us. There's reference made to the saints of old. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So they could see the promises of God, though they didn't experience them. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And we're not talking about Israel anymore, because if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are awaiting a new city. We are awaiting a heavenly home. But very much so, there's still work to be done. So what is that work? What do we do? Let's finish tying the knot. Let's bring this all together. As we wait on this new city, it's not about getting comfortable here That's been made evident in those passages, but also it is about getting comfortable here. I look to see confused faces. I see a couple, so we'll go in. All right. It's not about getting comfortable here, but it is. And we know that from Jeremiah 29. So let's go back to these captives in Babylon. We see this message, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So to be clear, though Nebuchadnezzar was the one that came in and took you, the God of Israel has taken credit for being the one who sent you into exile. Apply it to us. We are here because God would have us here. And he says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Sounds like to me, God wants us to make ourselves at home. Sounds like he's, he's telling his people, though you're going into a foreign land, live your lives. Live your best life. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. It sounds like you're going to be there a while. Get married. Have kids. Get your kids married. Enjoy being a grandparent. Because I hear that's the best. I look forward to it. This is amazing. It's shocking to me, considering our context and what I've been taught growing up in churches. And I mean, we know it's true because of the New Testament that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. But perhaps we've wrongly applied some of that. Certainly would have been shocking to the people of God in Babylon. This is their enemy. But it's more than a question of what do we do. It's a question of why are we doing what we're doing? In other words, we're to be in the world and do some of what they do. But remember who your king is. Remember what your king has accomplished. Remember who you are because of what he's accomplished. Remember who you're worshiping. Remember where your home is. Remember what you value because of who your God is. This, what I'm describing here, is the work of an ambassador. Which, thankfully, Paul lays out well in 2 Corinthians 5. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. So what does an ambassador do? One who who takes resident in one country, though citizenship belongs to another country. So let's break it down more. This means he or she must be fluent in the language of that country. He or she must thoroughly understand the customs of that people and that particular place in order to coherently communicate as a representative of their country the values of that country to the country they inhabit. We're ambassadors for this city that we await. 
We're ambassadors who carry the values of the king of our home country. Though we have this work to do, and more than an ambassador of France would do in America, we're trying to convert some people to our home country. We're trying to bring them home. We're trying to show them how our city is a better city, how our king is a better God, because he is our father, and he loves us as a father should. But we've never lost representation and values of our home, though we are making resident here. So as ambassadors, we can see the many things humans value by their human nature, Americans value by their American nature, Monroeans, is that what they're called? Monroeans? Somebody say it out loud. Yes, value by their Monroeans. I can't say it. I'm giving it up. The Washingtonians value, no, because that connects to the Native American tribe. You guys know what I'm saying, though. We know the values of the culture. And we can, by the Spirit, discern what's right for us to incorporate and what we should stay far from. We know by the value we see in this Word of God that we see as foundational, that lays out everything we need for life here and the mission before us. We know right from wrong but more than examining it to determine what's right and what's wrong, we have a dependence on the Holy Spirit to lead us in the mission because where you live in the world and the time period you live in determines some ways you contextualize. Though scripture is true throughout history. For example, if I lived in the Middle East where I was trying to reach people of an Islamic faith who abstain from alcohol at all costs, and who would find it reprehensible and extremely offensive if I were to invite them to a pub, I would have a conviction to forsake alcohol altogether without any hesitation so that I could win Muslims to Christ. But if I lived in a culture, hypothetical one that may exist, that was very legalistic about alcohol and demanded you stay far from it, otherwise you can't be a Christian according to the word of God, I would find the conviction to push against that because legalism for those who profess Christ is sinful. And I would say many times, as many times as I can, do you want to go to Flying Tiger? Because I see the need to break the legalism that's being applied to Christian faith that doesn't spring forth from true Christian faith. Context matters, but the word of God is true altogether. And we will do the necessary work to lay out how we see this in scripture, especially as it, as it relates to alcohol, because we know that's complex. And that's in the work for those intellectuals who need a paper that demonstrates it clearly. We'll do that. But as ambassadors here, I think most pressingly, we see that we live in a culture where where me first is the mantra, where it's all about my needs being met as soon as possible and everyone caring about what I had for lunch and what I think is cool and not cool and what I think is right and not right. And we'll call it it relativism. We'll call it uh, openness. I'm not intolerant of anything unless you're a Christian and you have strong convictions and I'm intolerant of you. We live in a culture that makes their values very clear and so we have the freedom to push back on that and fight against consumerism and materialism and vanity. It's a necessity that we not conform to those values, but instead we demonstrate the values of Christ and our sacrifice that would war against those things being extremely generous in every way possible, fighting for simplicity that makes our lives more dependent on the Spirit of God and the Creator rather than dependency on creation. We examine the culture, we see their values, and we remember my citizenship is not here. My king is not here. I represent a good God who actually defines goodness. And I uphold a truth that's clear in scripture. 
valuing both goodness and truth. And so we do this how? We do it by what Jeremiah says is seeking and praying for the welfare of this culture. It seems odd, maybe, because we're really good at praying for our, our welfare, and we're really good at praying that we would have peace, that we would have hope, but maybe we don't pray often enough for the culture, for the city. Certainly, Israel was good at praying for the peace of Jerusalem, but praying for the peace of Babylon? I don't know so much. Seeking the welfare of Monroe and West Monroe, seeking the welfare of your neighborhood, seeking the welfare of your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates, doing unto others what you think would be good if they were to do to you. Does that sound familiar? It's the golden rule. It's biblical for a reason. Loving your neighbors as you would love yourself. Loving your enemies. I think God has placed us where he's placed us for a reason. We're in our neighborhood for a reason. We're in your school, your workplace for a reason. It feels like you've been called to the mission of God because you have been called to the mission of God. Now, the Hebrew word for welfare here is shalom. It's a word you've probably heard before, but I don't think we have an English word that accurately captures this prosperity, the peace, the welfare that comes with the word shalom. Theologically, we would say there's not, there's, there's not a lexical range broad enough to capture this Hebrew word. So often we just use the word shalom, but our Western American minds can't really picture it. So let me try to help you. It means welfare, peace, prosperity, but it means it in every conceivable way. So there's flourishing socially, economically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically. All is good. Everything that you could imagine is good for a city. That's what you're hoping for. That's what you're praying for. Things are good for everybody in every way. For a community to have shalom means that they are prospering in life. There is justice for those who have been oppressed. There is joy for those who are without joy. There is hope for those who are without hope. Everybody is happy. There's meaning in life. There's purpose. There's direction. There's righteous behavior. There's wholeness. There's health. Everywhere you look, it's heaven. That's shalom. That's our hope. That's what we should pray for our city, for our neighbors, for those people in your life who annoy you for those people who you can't stand to be around, those people you dread to see the next time you have to see them, you should pray and hope for their shalom. So what are we seeking and praying for for Monroe? Initially, when I thought to preach this passage, I thought we would spend the entire time talking just about that and practically how do we apply that. But I didn't get there. And we're already pretty deep into this to try to make that veer right now. But we know it's clear that we are to be seeking and praying that the Lord would provide it. So what God is asking Israel to do for Babylon may be radical. And it's the same thing he's asking us to do. We're not just those people you like and want to see come to know the Lord because you hate seeing the, the darkness in their life. But for those people who you would wish the worst on, we should be praying for shalom. And that's going to require, just to give you an idea to shape your life, what Jared preached in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. It's going to require that we love people, that we rightly understand the love of God so that we can love people. None of our doing is anything if there's not love. And it's going, it's going to require we love them as we would love ourselves. So we're talking sacrifice, a sacrifice of the things you value the most, a sacrifice of your time and your energy and your resources. It's going to require you push yourself to give more when you feel like you've given enough. Certainly there's, there's room for discussion on how to rest well in Christ and how to be recharged and refueled and, and filled up. That's why we have DNA groups where we can hold one another accountable to seeking all that we need in Christ. That's why we have missional communities so that we can share the burden of discipleship. But again and again, we come back to the sacrifice necessary. This is going to mean we go out of our own ways to, to love people, to bless those who we don't want to bless. It's going to mean we are uncomfortable at times. It's going to mean it's messy and annoying and there's suffering involved in this. 
It might even mean we would give up everything. It might even mean that we would go so low that we would sympathize with those we don't agree with on any subject. It might even mean that we forgive those who deeply hurt and offend us. It might mean, couldn't, but it might mean that we give our lives that some would come to know Christ when they could not know him in any other way. Surely not, right? It seems evident to me that the New Testament very clearly calls us to, do, to that very thing. It seems clear that our lives are no longer our own. We don't own any of this. We're not a slave to sin anymore, but you are a slave to Christ. That the love of Christ compels you in every way to devote yourself to him in every way. That the life you now live in the flesh, you no longer live for yourself, but you live for the Son of God. That you don't belong to you. Your time is not yours. Your money is not yours. Your resources are not yours. Your energy does not belong to you. It belongs to God. And the good news about that, it is way better in his hands than it would ever be in yours. You are not going to find the peace you want in your own hands. You're not going to find the joy you seek in your own means. God has it for you. Give everything to him. There's freedom there. It seems terrifying. I know because I'm human as well. It seems terrifying to know that I could lose my family, that I could lose the things that give me comfort in this world, that I could lose my bank account, that I could lose my credit score, that I could lose my life. But it's not mine. It's God's for his glory. We lay it all out there. There's not a mission to be accomplished unless we first see that the gospel has freed us from slavery to ourselves. And we see with clarity as believers, we still very much live in slavery to ourselves because we're fools who think we know what's best for us. Just like Israel wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the promised land. And God, our father, is so faithful that he will take you out of this world if it means he could save you. So what are we risking when we say, I've got this? What are we risking when we say, I know what's best for me? Why are we being foolish to think we have it figured out? We know the right doctrine. We know how to bring people to Jesus. We know how salvation works. We know what justice looks like. We'll fight for it. We'll stand up for it. We'll devote our lives to it. I'll make a Facebook post with a good hashtag so people will like it. What are we thinking? Push it aside. Lay down your idols. Church, worship the God of creation. Stop worshiping his creation because it will leave you empty. There's so much more than we even know. There's so much more. And who does this sound like? What, who in existence does this extreme sacrifice sound like? Who in their right minds would lay down their lives for their enemies? Who would give up everything? Who would give up the promised land to step down and humiliate themselves by serving their enemies? Who would give up their lives? There's only one, the only innocent one, the only one to ever be good enough became sin so that we, filthy sinners that we are, could become the righteousness of God. There's only one who can make any of this possible. Jesus is all that we need. Now, I can say it on any given Sunday. I could say Jesus is all you need. I could say, believe the gospel. Let's worship God. But if you don't believe it, you're not going to feel it. You're not going to feel in you right now the stirring to praise him. You're not going to feel right now, Kendrick, just stop preaching so that we can praise him. If you don't believe this gospel, he took on all the inconveniences. He suffered in every way so that we might have shalom because there's greater things for us than anything this world could give us. And because of his sacrifice, we see 1 Peter chapter 2. This is true of who we are. 
So as we think vision, don't think what do we do, think who are we well. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, that we would proclaim it with our words, with our lives, with our values. We proclaim the gospel in all of life because of who Christ is. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when America would speak against us Christ followers as evildoers and intolerant bigots, let us hold up the truth, hold up the value that they may see your good deeds, your love, not your slander, not your threats, not your hate speech, not what you stand against, but they would see your good deeds flowing rightly from right belief. And they, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, would glorify God on the day of visitation. That they would see, oh, this is the God they were talking about. This is the goodness they boasted of. This is the shalom they prayed that I would have. We are sojourners, but we are not to be indifferent towards the needs around us. There is darkness. There is brokenness. There is need for life all around us. And we are to care about those who are in dark places and fight against evil and poverty and brokenness and injustice and disunity and suffering most of all eternal suffering. And that's the greatest danger Monroe faces. So let us be faithful to proclaim this gospel truth and call others into this new city with us that our long lost brothers and sisters would come to know our father once again. Let's pray. Father, it is my hope and indeed our calling that we would not just be foreigners who are sitting here idly waiting for Jesus to return, but that we would live life in such a way that the natives of this land would come to know our King. God, help us as we are increasingly aware of our need for help. There's not an individual in this building, no matter how long we've professed to be a Christian who has it figured out. So help us to humble ourselves and worship you, our only source of hope and life. And when we live in light of this vision, God, let it be true of us that we would seek and pray for shalom for this city, evidenced by the spirit that, that moves within us, that as we move into neighborhoods, into workplaces, into schools, we would we'd be very aware that Jesus is moving in and that those around us would see Jesus in all of our lives and that we would be faithful to proclaim the truth of this God because we believe it's good news. In Jesus' name, amen.